This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Ken Honda, Japan's number one best-selling personal development guru, knows that getting rich quick is no way to achieve happiness. Too often, money is a source of fear, stress, and anger, sometimes breaking apart relationships and even ruining lives. We like to think money is just a number on a piece of paper, but it is so much more than that. Money has the ability to smile. Its energy changes when it's given with a certain feeling, and this energy impacts not only ourselves, but others as well. Although Ken Honda, who's going to be a guest on the show for this part, is often called a money guru, his real job over the past decade has been to help others discover the tools they already possess to heal their own lives and relationships with money. And in this part of today's show, Ken is going to be explaining in practical and accessible language how to achieve peace of mind when it comes to money. We'll learn how to treat money as a welcome guest, allowing it to come and go with respect and without resentment. We'll talk about how to understand and improve your money IQ, and we'll unpack the myth of scarcity and embrace the process of giving money, not just receiving it. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about happy money when Positive Parenting continues right after this. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brada, and my guest for this part of today's show is Ken Honda, who is the author of Happy Money, The Japanese Art of Making Peace with Your Money. Ken, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited, and I feel honored to be here. And I should say that you're, you're calling in from Japan, which is a, a, a first for us. Uh, oh, so great. Thank you. I'm so honored. Uh, so let, let's start off with something that's maybe a little bit silly, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. What is mm-hmm. money exactly? <laughs> that's a simple and yet very deep question. Uh, for um, uh, Money is a very interesting thing because it's so different depending on who you ask. If you ask a very happy person, uh, they would say, money supports my life. And if you um, ask uh, uh, people who are frustrated with money, they say, Ooh, money is a, a so um, not reliable thing. You know, it, it could hurt me, so I have to be careful with money. So it would be very different. It, and, and also, if there are 100 people, 100 ways of experiencing money. And not all of them are good, though. That's some problem, of right? them, <laughs> yes, yeah, some of them are bad. Some of them are good. It's up to their experiences. So it's almost like life. What is life? For some people, life is good. For some people, life is suffering. So um, it's, it's an in- interesting thing. Even if you live in the same condominium, your life will be very different. So yeah. money 
is almost like a reflection of your life. If you're happy, um, money feels happy. If you're sad, money could be sad. If you're frustrated, money could be a frustrating thing. Well, that raises an interesting question because at the at the very beginning of the book, you talk about an exchange that you had or a, a meeting that you had with a, a woman who wanted to take a look at your wallet, which yes. is something... You said it's not so unusual in Japan, but I think here you oh. would somebody would be <laughs> almost arrested for that. Uh, yeah. we, you know, we don't we don't talk about money um, so much. So, so she wanted to take a look at your wallet, and, she, and you you allowed her to do that. And she pulled out all the money that you had in your wallet, and she said, "Oh, this one's good. This one's good." And and all your money was smiling. And yeah. talk about that a little bit because I think that's that's you know it it sounds as though. You could have happy money and not such happy money in in your wallet at the same time. You didn't, yes, but, no. but one could. Yeah, thank you. So I was approached by this uh, Japanese woman, and at the time, you know, um, there were magazine articles and TV shows about what kind of uh, wallets that celebrities and politicians and you know musicians have. And I think probably she was interest, I'm interested in my wallet. So... She took out my, uh, I gave her my wallet, and she wanted to check um, what's inside. And and I'm very open to um, a lot of things, so I said, why not? And she took out all the bills, and she was checking, and she was telling herself, this is good, this is great, this looks great, too. And she handed it back to me, and she said, Ken, your, all your money is good because they're smiling. And I asked, them, I asked her, what? And she said, uh, that means that you're making a lot of people happy and receive money. On the other hand, if you're taking advantage of other people and receive money, or if you're doing what you don't like and get money, your money is crying or angry in your wallet. And I thought it's a very interesting idea. It is really an interesting idea. And you talk about in the book some types of happy money, and you just you mentioned a few of them before, but just to, mm-hmm. to go through, there were helping somebody who's in in a bind, helping with, with finances, sending a few dollars to somebody who is affected by a hurricane or right. raising money for a homeless shelter, uh, or if, you're, if you receive money from a happy, uh, a satisfied client. And on the other hand, the unhappy money kinds of things that maybe if you're receiving money as alimony after an ugly divorce, I think that's, that's probably one that a lot of people would say would be unhappy money, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, stealing money from other people. Or if you're having to pay a debt that you don't want to pay, um, but I, I'm I'm still I'm not completely clear on it. You talk about energy in the book and how money can have mm-hmm. certain energy. How can we take a look at our own wallets and mm-hmm. decide whether the money is actually happy or not, or do we know that before we look at it? Yes, you know, um, Japanese people are sensitive about the air. Um, in your house or in your company. For example, since you're talking about uh, child raising a lot, uh, when, I, when you go visit a house, you kind of feel the air, you know, yeah. filled with happy air or unhappy air or frustrated air. It's the same thing with money. Uh, money has a certain energy. Uh, if uh, money you have is a happy one, your uh, life will be happy too. But if you have frustrated money or yucky money or ugly money, your life gets also influenced by that, too. So you can tell. You, you ask yourself, do I have a happy money in my wallet? And then you would know. 
What about people who are not terribly happy in their jobs? And I'm sure that that's just as common in Japan as it is here, is that people just work、mm-hmm. and they have a job that they don't necessarily like, but they, it pays the bills and that's, that's、mm-hmm. what they need to do.、Uh, you know, so, but, so that money might not be terribly happy because、mm-hmm. they're not happy earning it, but maybe you're spending it on good things. So can, can money be happy and unhappy at the same time? Yes. So,、um, the money you receive could be unhappy, but I call it、uh, happy money cleansing or happy money laundry. So, when you appreciate money, it becomes happy money. So, even if you re- when, when you receive it, even if it's unhappy money, you appreciate the money you have and then spend it in a happy way. That becomes happy money. I call it happy money laundry. It's much better than other, other things. <laughs> okay. <laughs>、um, yes. So, l- let's talk about what. The, your philosophy is about what you do with your money. So,、mm-hmm. what, what is it that we want to do with our money to make sure that we have a good relationship with it? And I think that the, the other part of the question is so that we can have more of it.、Mm-hmm. So, the, the thing is,、um, once again, I talk about money and feelings you have. We have certain feelings toward money. So, just imagine money in terms of cash, credit card, or your bank account. And that if that makes you feel good, feel blessed, that you have a lot of happy money. It, it just doesn't really matter how much you have or how much you, you make. It's about how you feel toward money. And when you feel good about money receiving and money spending, you're in the cycle of happy money. And if you feel bad or frustrated or like, ooh, you know, like you feel like choked up, that's unhappy money. So you have to change your attitude toward money. Otherwise, it could ruin your life. And a lot of、um, reasons for divorce in China, Japan, US, and Europe, and Africa, and other countries, the major ones are、uh, with money. So you have to be very careful with what kind of energy money you have in your, in your house and in your wallet. And, and how do you do that, though? I mean, it, it seems so easy to just go on autopilot and. You earn the money,、yes. you use your credit、uh-huh. card to buy things, you don't care about it.、Yes. When the bill comes, you pay the bill. And、uh-huh. I don't know, I'd say for a lot of people, money just isn't happy or unhappy. It's just something that、uh-huh. we have to do. Yes. So,、um, my mentor, Wahei Takeda, who's called Warren Buffett of Japan, he suggested arigato in, arigato out. That means when the money comes in, thank the money. And when, and when you spend the money, also thank the money. Or the,、uh, when you pay the bills, paying the debt, and paying for the credit card thing. So,、um, the, the key is to appreciate money. And it's very easy. When you receive money, when you receive a check, just say, Arigato, thank the money. And it's a, probably a new concept. But once you start doing it,、um, money coming in, money going out, you forget to worry. Because Wahe pointed out that our human mind. Can focus only one thing at a time. So if you focus on gratitude, you cannot worry at the same time.、Hmm. That's an interesting idea. So、mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just a little bit puzzled because I think people、yeah. would be, they'd say that they're, they're grateful to have the job, they're grateful for、uh-huh. a lot of things, but I'm not sure that somebody would say that they're grateful for the actual money. Although, if you think about it, it makes sense. Yeah. Yes. And also, It gives you a good feeling.、Um, for example, one of my participants in my seminar,、uh, 
she didn't have a college degree, and uh, but she was hired as as a secretary. But she was complaining when she came to my class, and about her low-paying job. Uh, but um, after she got the idea of happy money, she started to appreciate her boss for giving her the job uh, because mm -hmm. she is not really qualified for the job. But right. after a few weeks, she got a big raise because and, and all, all, all she did was just appreciating her boss. Mm -hmm. So that explains that appreciation always draws uh, something good in life. You know, uh, you feel yeah. it. When people appreciate you, you feel the appreciation. You, you want to do something uh, good back to the person. It's like a, a human psyche that right. when we appreciate it, we want to do something for that people. Ken Honda is the author of Happy Money, The Japanese Art of Making Peace with Your Money. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about money with Ken. Okay, forest animals, kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow, have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. River, how's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. I love it. Uh, turtle. He's not here yet, man. Uh, he's late every morning. Okay. Squirrel. The forest has been preparing just for you. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brown. If you're just joining us, talking with Ken Honda, who is calling in from Japan, and he happens to be the author of Happy Money, The Japanese Art of Making Peace with Your Money. Excuse me. <clears throat> so, Ken, I want to talk to you about something else. We talked about happiness, and, and but I think there's a, an, another issue which a lot of people have, which is scarcity. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. talk about the, the myth of scarcity, that there there may actually, it may, it may not be as scarce as we think that it is. I think it's... Talk about that a little bit, please. Yes. Uh, so all of us live in either uh, abundant world or scare scarcity world. Um, if you live in abundant world, you feel like there's, there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of money, even not necessarily your money, but when you need money, the money will be there. That's uh, abundant mentality. But on the other hand, most of us are stuck in this scarcity mindset. When we spend money, we, it's a loss. When we give some, something, it's a loss. We have a limited um, resources in the world, so unless you take it, somebody will take, um, take it. So it's almost like a win and lose or lose, lose and win, zero-sum um, world when um, people benefit out of your loss. And it's a, a sad and a scary mentality. So you always um, feel fear on money, life, and jobs, so you always want to uh, seek security uh, for uh, out of all the things you need, and then you you tend to forget about um, in the joy of life once you are uh, set into this life. And how do you begin to change your attitude about that, though? Is yes, it is it back again, to gratitude again? Yeah, once again, if you know you already have a lot. You can breathe. You know, if you have a roof over your head, you are more abundant than um, probably 80% uh, of the world. You have electricity, hot running water. It's a miracle for uh, uh, for a lot of people. So if you feel if you start counting what you have instead of what you don't, 
because uh, we are uh, almost brainwashed to think that we're supposed to have more, more car, more fancy something in, in all the categories, clothes, um, you know, cars, and electronic goods, TVs. And so we are stretched to, um, to this pressure about spending more money and have more. So instead of going for that, if you feel the content um, and if you feel satisfaction in everyday life with what you got, you feel more gratitude and you feel more secure about life. But if you focus on, I don't have enough, I don't have enough, you you be scared for the rest of your life. And it's not a happy attitude. Mm -hmm. What is money IQ? Uh, money IQ is money intelligence that uh, you are supposed to know, like what stocks work and the tax laws and and all the other basic things. You don't have to know all the details. Um, you can hire somebody to do that for you, but you have to have a basic financial intelligence. Otherwise, uh, you work for money. You cannot uh, have money work for you. So you need to know uh, basic things like how, how to earn, how to protect, how to spend, how to increase money. So uh, you need four um, financial IQs to begin with. Uh, the subtitle of the book is The Japanese Art of Making Peace with Your Money. Do you think that Japanese people are more at peace with money than Americans or Europeans? I cannot really compare, but uh, in Japan... Um, our society, we have a lot of safety net. Our, uh, everybody is insured, so you don't have to worry getting, about getting sick. And if something happens, the government, your friends and family can always support you. So there, there's probably like a less fear around money and life. Whereas in other countries, um, there's a lot of um, fear. Because like in Japan, in Tokyo, we have 40 million people. But we have really have crime. So even a um, seven-year-old girl can go on subway by herself, and it's okay. She's perfectly safe. And if she's lost, she can grab any adult for direction. But probably in other countries, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine, right? No, I think if I put my seven-year-old on a, on a bus by herself, I probably would be arrested, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so which is sad. I was sad. so surprised that there's a lot like that. So here, you know, everybody's pretty trustworthy. So uh, even after the earthquake, there was no looting. You know, people helped each other. They opened houses so people can stay and rest and use the bathroom. So they get hot water. So as, as a society, I think Japan has a, a better safety net. So that could be a little different. But um, individually, I think if you trust life more, um, your life will be filled with more joy. But I think it's anywhere. And uh, in Japan, there are people with a, a lot of fear on money. And also in, in North America and Europe, there are people with very happy money. So it's right. very um, individual. Yeah, you can't, you can't make it. But, but I think the, the idea that there's the safety nets probably makes things mm -hmm. a little bit easier. Is that I think so a lot of people right. are worried about if you miss a check. I mean, there were some studies that were done here fairly recently. They were finding that some huge percentage of people, I forgot what, what the percentage was, but they couldn't pay if they had a, an emergency of $400. They didn't yeah. have that. If you, know, if you need tires, I mean, I just spent $600 on tires for my car. and, and 
uh-huh. think, wow, it just, I can't imagine somebody not being able to, to do that. It just seems like such a basic thing. Yes, but we're so brainwashed to spend more money. That's why we have little cash. So, you know, it's no wonder. We're supposed to um, spend every penny we have. So that's a mentality. Well, you're supposed to spend you're supposed to spend the pennies you don't have too by pulling out your <laughs> credit true. card, and yeah, that's that's yes, the. So right. I mean, so many of the credit card ads are, are Joe, sure, just pull it, just buy it on a credit card, and you get you get miles mm-hmm. or something. I mean, it's um, is is yeah, there so that type? I mean, I know J- Japan is is very consumerist like we are. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have been in Japan, but not for not for a very long period of time. And I don't mm-hmm. remember the ads that much, but is there as much of an emphasis on credit card spending and, and oh, go ahead and buy it if it makes you feel good? <laughs> yes. There is an ad, which I thought is very cute. Um, it said, um, at the, in front of a register, it says, uh, buy now, regret later at home. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so that's the idea. I mean, it, it's cute, but it's also sad in a way so unless you, know. you um get out of this trance of you have to spend more money you'll be stuck in this debt situation or you'll be stuck in this like buy more earn more and um, right. do more so yeah. unless you just um figure out what how to do it and so what i'm getting um questions in america and japan are very interesting in america people want to ask questions like how can I um, increase money with happy money, uh, my income? And in Japan, people tend to ask me, how can I be more satisfied with less money? Hmm. So it's a, a similar question, but it's a totally different attitude. Right, right, exactly. One, one of them is a little bit more grateful than the other one. So we well, only it's have... It's a different attitude, yes. Yeah, we only have one minute or so left, but just mm-hmm. give, give me, what's the the biggest information, the biggest piece of knowledge you want us to have about money? Okay, so money is a neutral thing, and if you're scared of money, you'll be fearful for the rest of your life. So start appreciating what you have, start appreciating money. If you can appreciate money, you can trust life more, and I hope um, you do uh, what matters most. I retired for my baby girl for four years, and that's the best time of my life. So I want you to focus on your family and what's most important in your life instead of just going after stuff and money. So just be yourself and enjoy life. That's my message. And does this include try to pay your credit cards off or any particular strategies of of saving money or spending less? Mm -hmm. Yes, there are so many ways. Um, I've written more than uh, 57 books uh, in Japanese. You know, it's um, money IQ, money EQ, emotional intelligence, so uh, more to come um, later for U.S. market. So I'm, I'm very excited to share what I know and because that really is a key to happiness. So unless you feel peace with the money, um, it's hard to trust life. I think you're right. Ken Honda is the author of Happy Money, The Japanese Art of Making Peace with Your Money, and 56 other books, apparently. So I'm very happy to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Ken. Thank you so much. I mean, um, this is my pleasure and uh, my honor.
It's Practical Poly Radio. I've switched to cooking with healthier oils. So now what do I do with all these tubs of lard? Skinny jeans feeling too tight? A bit of lard on your hips and thighs and those pants slide on like a dream. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste. But get your best heart-healthy trade-up with healthier oils, like canola, olive, or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Learn more at heart.org slash face the fats. Canola Info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's Face the Fats campaign. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. If you've got little ones, you know how much gear you need, whether you're planning a walk around the block or a road trip. And it's not just any gear. You're always thinking about cost, size, durability, safety, ease of use, and more. Here are some solid options to consider. We're confident that you'll find them useful. The Dual Fit Harness 2 Booster Seat from Brightax. One of the first and most important things to decide on is a car seat. And this seat from Brightax is a safe, solid, and reasonably priced option for when your baby outgrows his or her carrier snap-and-go seat. It easily transitions from a three-point harness seat that accommodates kids from 25 to 65 pounds to a booster that goes up to 100 pounds. So the seat will grow right along with your child. According to the... Brightax's patented system of safety components work together to transfer energy away from your child, and two layers of side impact protection shield your child in the event of a crash. With its easy-on and easy-off lower connectors that lock into place with a click and are released with the push of a button, installation and removal are a breeze. It's about $170. This one and many others are available at us.brightax.com. The Be Lively Double Stroller from Brightax. Brightax's Be Lively Double Stroller has a lightweight aluminum frame, folds quickly and easily, a necessity for packing up and getting into the car, and provides a nice smooth ride for two. And since Brightax knows how much moms and dads have to schlep around, it comes with six storage pockets and a large underseat storage basket, so there's plenty of space for everything. The stroller itself is easy to push and maneuver and is also compatible with your infant car seat when it's paired with an infant car seat adapter kit, which is sold separately. It costs under $400, and you can find out a lot more at us.brightax.com. Natural Flow Options Plus Anti-Colic Bottles from Dr. Brown's. Nothing brings a tear to a parent's eye quicker than when their own children are crying. Fortunately, if some of that crying is caused by colic, Dr. Brown's has a number of cool, innovative options that can help. Dr. Brown's bottles have been clinically proven to reduce colic, decrease spit-up, burping, and gas. Plus, they better preserve nutrients in breast milk and formula, and aid in digestion for a better night's sleep. All that goes a long way toward explaining why Dr. Brown's are the number one pediatrician recommended and number one selling bottles in America. Both the Options Plus and Anti-Colic bottles, which are available in both wide and narrow neck styles, are designed to make feeding easy and let baby go from breast to bottle and back as needed with no troubles. According to the company, the breast-like nipples on these bottles provides a correctly contoured shape that's flexible at the top and gradually firms, encouraging 
encouraging a proper latch and more natural bottle feeding experience. All of these bottles and their other products are available at drbrownsbaby.com. Have you checked our archives at parentsatplay.com? Please do, because you'll find reviews of a ton of other products and games and toys and all sorts of other wonderful things to do with your kids right there. Again, that's parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another show for you, but don't go yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Else encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, and welcome to the second part of today's positive parenting show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. I'm going for a walk. How often has this phrase been uttered? We've been bipedal walkers for at least six million years, but how many of us really still walk in our everyday lives? Driven by a combination of car-centric culture and an insatiable thirst for productivity and efficiency, we are sitting longer than we ever have before. If bipedal walking is truly what makes our species human, as paleontologists claim, what does it mean that we are designing walking right out of our lives? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about the loss of walking as an individual and community act and how it has the potential to destroy our deepest spiritual connections, our democratic society, our neighborhoods, and our freedom. But we can change the course of our mobility. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an author who is going to help us with a wealth of science, history, and anecdotes and tell us exactly how walking is essential to how we think, how we grow, how we socialize, how we move, and how deeply reliant our brains and bodies are on this simple, everyday act. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about walking and how to incorporate more of it into our lives when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. 
For more tax-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Antonia Malchik, who's the author of A Walking Life, Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom One Step at a Time. Antonia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us a little bit about why a book on walking. It seems like an unusual topic, given that we don't walk so much anymore. I guess that I guess well, in a way I, that answers the question, doesn't it? That's we should it, be walking. It more. does. Yeah. It, and and partly also it's um it's unusual simply because it, it's such an ingrained part of our lives that we don't think about it very much. Um, or at all, actually. Uh, so I first got interested in the subject when I was living in upstate New York. I'm originally from Montana, but um my kids were both born in slightly upstate New York and uh, there was a snowstorm. We had this huge snowstorm, and there was like six inches of freezing rain the night before, and then 24 hours of snow. And being from Montana, I'm used to snowstorms. But um, I had I was pregnant, and I had a two and a half year old, and my husband was away, and it really and the power went out, and it really came home to me that I could not get anywhere because the snow was so heavy that all the plows broke down. Couldn't get out of my driveway. Um, and I was like, I need, you know, if my son has an asthma attack, which he had asthma at the time, time, and I need to go anywhere, I can't do it. I am completely trapped because I'm completely dependent on getting places in my car. And uh, my father, is, I'm a fifth generation Montana, but my father is from the Soviet Union, and he used to tell us stories about just walking all over the canals and all over the city for hours and hours with his friends. And this was first under Stalin and then after Stalin died, but it was still a very, very politically and socially restricted society and country, And um, but they could talk about forbidden ideas while they were walking. And so I sort of got interested in those two, you know, my lack of freedom to walk with my kids and my father's freedom to walk and think, even in a very restrictive society. And then having children, I was I just got very, very interested in the mechanics of walking and the complexity of it. it. It still fascinates me that, you know, mostly our kids learn to walk at some point. You know, they tumble and fall. They take thousands of steps a day. But they learn to do it, and yet it's so complex that the best engineers in the world, the smartest people, have not yet been able to make a robot that is able to just walk in the world yeah. on two legs the way that we do. And it's funny you should mention that because I was just thinking this the other day. My oldest is is 29, and I still have a very strong memory of taking her to this place called oh, all of a sudden I'm blanking on what it's called, but it's it's <laughs> it's on the coast of California. Very very windy when she was about maybe a little bit less than a year and a half old. We were standing on on the edge of a cliff, not too close to the edge, but and I was just watching her the way that she was somehow managing to maintain her balance with all the wind that would have been strong enough to knock her over a couple of months before and how all these complex movements that she was making to to stay upright. And then I was looking at your book and thinking you've got some sections in there about just what you talked about, the, the mechanics of 
of walking and how do you take one step without falling over completely or how do you walk slowly or how do you walk fast it's 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 just it's fascinating that we're able to actually do that and it's good that we don't have to think about it because if you did you'd never get anywhere <laughs> it's absolutely true i i think um one one uh, paper I read said that we our brains go through a billion calculations at least every time we take a step because you're right it's so complex. Uh, I hadn't actually even thought about wind, but you're right that's something else that we have to take in. The way the air is moving every time we take a step, we have to take in if there's an obstacle coming towards us, whether it's stationary or whether it's moving, how it's moving, like another person on a sidewalk, for example. Um, or crossing a road, engaging how fast the car is, is coming. Um, and you have these systems, like the vestibular system in the inner ear, that actually detects the gravitational pull of the planet. Because when we're walking, it feels like you might be walking on a flat surface or on a trail, but actually you're on a planet that's moving at a 1,000 miles per hour, and you have to accommodate that. And um, I just find that mind-blowing. Um, this just fascinates me. Even after two years of researching and writing, I'm just like, wow, it's amazing. How does it play out with people who don't learn to walk early? I know that there's a lot of controversy, and I've written a lot about this in my, my books on fatherhood at various points, talking about child development, that there's, there's some battles going back and forth between people who say, oh, children need to crawl for as long as possible, and that kids who start walking early some of them don't do as well in math and science, and then other people say, well, kids who walk earlier do better in certain kinds of things. And how, how does learning to walk affect us throughout our lives? That is a very interesting question, and I'm really glad you brought it up. Um, I do talk about one paper in particular that looked at children, infants, who had a vestibular disorders, so that inner ear function, they weren't able to walk very well or very stably in the world because they had disorders in their inner ear. And that can um, show up in all sorts of ways. There's certain illnesses, or there might just be like a temporary vestibular loss, like if you get vertigo. Um, and they did find pretty significant links between vestibular disorders and um, later reading comprehension difficulties, uh, spatial relations, because when you're walking in the world, the three-dimensional world, you are constantly taking in all of this information about three-dimensional space around you. And if you're not doing that, um, then it, it does affect the growth of your hippocampus. But the, the people who wrote that paper, when I emailed them, um, that was in France, and they said, you know, it's important to remember that some of those differences can be quite small. They're detectable, but they're small. And the kinds of therapies we have nowadays are so much better than they used to be. They can be really targeted uh, with sensory issues, vestibular issues. You can really think carefully about how to help children um, accommodate, uh, you know, or make up for those issues and, and make, you know, close those gaps. Um, but it's interesting you brought up the walking versus crawling because I remember when my kids were little, that that was when the big research was around about your children need to crawl more in order for their reading ability to really develop later. And my kids were in early intervention, um, and I'm sure you're familiar with that program. My son was born very premature, and so um, it's a state-run program where, you know, you get it for free. You get these therapists who come in. We have physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy, and, you know, my kids are absolutely fine now, but it was, it was wonderfully beneficial at the time. 
And these therapists told me about that. And they said they think it has to do with, you know, when you're crawling and you're moving your forelimbs. And, again, it helps that hippocampus grow. Um, and I remember my older sister was really worried. This is before I started writing about walking. She was really worried because her oldest daughter never crawled. She went straight to walking. Um, and she was really, really concerned. And when her daughter was uh, not fluently reading in second grade, um, oh, she was it has to be very that, concerned yeah. about maybe that has something to do with it. And, you know, and now she's just an insanely wonderful reader and a very smart girl. Um, so I, I think it's one of those fields where we're always discovering new things and learning more about the human brain and how the human brain and the human body work together. Yeah, and it's there's no right or wrong answer, I don't think. I mean, there's certainly enough evidence on both sides of it that you could just say, you know, you do the best you can, and <clears throat> what are you going to do if your kid wants to crawl for a little while longer? Are you going to drag him up? Right. And, or if your kid wants to walk, you're going to, you know, not, what are you going to do, push yeah, him back down I, on the floor? Crawl. The book, my daughter, she didn't walk until 22 months, and, and there was we tried everything. Um, and eventually I just let it go, and, you know, now she walks fine and does karate and all sorts of things. And I, I do talk about the work of Dr. Karen Adolph, who runs the Infant Research Lab at New York University. And um, she is really firm about understanding when children walk is very much defined by the culture that they're raised in. So she studies walking all over the world. And there are all sorts of different traditions and expectations, kids who walk much later, kids who are free to climb things a whole lot earlier, you know, the kind of thing that would turn my hair grayer <laughs> with worrying about the children. And, and, you know, eventually we all get to that point of walking through the world. I'm talking with Antonia Malchik, who is the author of A Walking Life, Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom One Step at a Time. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Antonia. We're going to keep talking about walking and the mechanics of it, which we've covered a little bit, but also something that she calls social capital and the importance of walking as social capital, of staying connected with other people, and also how we as parents can incorporate more of walking into a life that seems to be set up to not walk. I'm Armin Brat, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Psst, Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. What are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. It's been a long time since we've had an adventure in the forest. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. You're right. I should get out. Yeah, the forest is not that far away. Hey, Mom, come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brad. If you're just joining us, talking with Antonia Malchik, the author of A Walking Life, Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom One Step at a Time. You talk about walking as being social capital. What does that mean exactly? Well, social capital uh, came about, the term came about in the early 1900s, but it, what it really means is neighborliness. So it is the, the richness of the connections that you have within your community. So 
say you have a natural disaster. Um, in the book, I talked about the heat wave in Chicago in 1995. The researcher who studied that also studied Superstorm Sandy, but um, I live in Montana, so wildfires and wildfire smoke are huge issues. Um, and what that means is, you know, you know who needs help. Um, you know who might be able to help you. You know how to get out of your community. But it doesn't have to be just about disasters. That's sort of when the richness of your social capital manifests. But it's those daily interactions, those daily encounters. You know, can't do you have a neighbor that you can just pop over and borrow a cup of sugar from? I know that doesn't happen so much anymore. Um, do you know who likes to read a book you just heard about? All those daily interactions, they feel really, really inconsequential. But actually, those are the things that make our community fabric really, really strong. I want to actually have you talk a little bit more about the social capital thing, because I, I think there's something interesting there that a little bit of a contradiction. There's an obsession that a lot of people have with getting their 10,000 steps a day. And so you would think that that would involve walking. But you see a lot of people getting those 10,000 steps on a treadmill while they're watching TV as opposed to doing what you're talking about, which is is using walking as a means of connecting with other people. Is there, I mean, obviously there's some health benefit to walking, but it sounds like you would be advocating that there's a mental health component as well. Absolutely. Um, there is a lot of research uh, of the, about the effects of walking on illnesses like depression. If you're dealing with depression, just that daily movement helps a tremendous amount. There is also a growing epidemic of loneliness. Uh, this has been studied over and over, and feeling chronically lonely it's, you know, we are evolutionary obligated to be social. We developed in communities, in tribes, and that is how we felt safe. If you got kicked out of your tribe, you were very unlikely to survive. So human beings, like we biologically need to feel connected to other people. So if you feel chronically lonely, that is actually, I think it's almost worse for your health than obesity, if I remember the statistics. Uh, the main researcher on this said it's just as bad as obesity. The only difference is that obesity just doesn't make you as miserable as loneliness does. And so, you know, if you're living in a sort of isolated suburb or a gated community, you're driving to the gym, watching TV or listening to, you know, a show and getting your 10,000 steps a day in that way, you are getting that physical benefit, but you are not getting the benefit of the social connection, just interacting with other people briefly, but constantly. And also, say, being out in nature. We do need nature. We need trees. We need um, the kind of calm and attentiveness that green spaces bring us. Um, so it, it's part of actually why I wanted to write the book in the first place, because to me, walking, it's not just about getting those steps in. It is about all of those other things that a walkable life can bring to individual human beings and to societies. Um, and there's a story I didn't put in the book, and I'm kind of glad I didn't because it was updated recently, and it was about this man in Los Angeles, which is famously unwalkable, who started a people-walking business. So I think at the time it was $7 an hour. You could pay him, and he would walk you places. And he started it as sort of a safety thing, like you want to have an appointment, you want to go across the park, you don't feel safe, he'll be your companion. 
But he found right at the beginning, people were just looking for company. And uh, there, was a, there was an update in the LA Times recently about that, and it's grown into a really big business. He has all sorts of people he employs to be walking partners. Um, I call them walking partners because otherwise it does mm. kind of sound like a dog walking business. <laughs> um, it's the people walking business. Uh, and, and so often the people that they're walking with just want some connection. They just want some. They want to walk through the park. They want to walk down the street. They want someone to chat with about their lives, hear about someone else's life. doesn't have to be deep. doesn't have to be major, but they need that connection. Well, so how do you incorporate, as as parents, how do we incorporate walking into our lives, particularly with our kids, when the kids, I mean, some of them will ride their bikes to school, but so many kids get rides or they take the bus or some kids are now taking Uber, the thing I never even would have thought would be possible, um, taking Uber to, to school and, and people don't walk, they just generally don't walk as much as, as we used to when we were kids. Uh, it's absolutely true. Um, it's a huge problem in part because throughout the 1900s, we built so much of our world to just serve the car. So you have suburbs, you have rural roads that have no sidewalks, no safe places for kids to walk on. Um, you know, I think the answer to this one is kind of a long-term one and it's kind of vision a vision that I have. I kind of look at what would I want my community and my society to look like in 30 years? Uh, I would like all kids to be able to walk or bike to school or walk or bike to the bus safely on their own. Um, and that's a long project simply because the infrastructure that we have embedded is so not friendly to that vision. Um, for myself, I did move back into my hometown in Montana. It's a very walkable community. Uh, my husband was more interested in having a house further out in the woods, and I said, no, I want to be in town, and that way we can walk places. And he sees the benefit of that now as well because now our kids are pretty independent. They know how to get around town on their own. And it's, uh, I don't know, the difference in how they feel about their lives is really tremendous. And it's interesting. I'll notice even people who live right near where we do, they'll still drive their kids to school. It's about a mile and a quarter away, about a 30-minute walk. Um, and it, sometimes if our kids are playing around together, I'll offer to walk home with them and their kids will observe that they think they might know where to go from this one part of town to the other that's within a 10 minute walk. And it just amazes me that they have never had the opportunity to develop that geographical sense of place. Just even in this tiny town of 7,000 people, they don't always know exactly where they are because they're used to being driven everywhere. So I think the first thing is for people who can give their kids access to walking is to start making that a priority in their own lives if it's possible. You know, if not, just getting out um, at the weekends or any other time, going for a walk together. We sometimes just go a walk around the block in the um, after dinner, especially when the weather's nicer. So there are a lot of options for that. And and just to warn everybody, they will whine at first. <laughs> well, especially if they haven't we're done not it a keen lot. On it. Yeah. When we first started, especially since we'd always driven when we were living in a rural area, they, they did not want to walk. But they adapted pretty quickly, and now they like it. Do you think that people need any kind of special equipment to walk, or can you just do it with whatever you've got on? I am an advocate for doing it with whatever you've got on. I don't wear special shoes. Um, I have a pair of leather boots that I wear walking. Um, but, of course, if you have any kind of mobility issues, then, yes, 
you are going to need mobility aids to walk around. And that's part of where also the rest of society comes in, really thinking about how we design sidewalks, how we design streets, so that if you have the use of a wheelchair, you can walk anywhere that you want to go. You shouldn't be limited just because you need a mobility aid. Um, but other than that, I, you know, I wear a hat to protect me from the sun. Um, we've kind of stockpiled, not stockpiled, but we, we all have, you know, rain pants and coats. And But we also only own one very old car, so I think the cost of that is, is more than balanced out by getting rid of our second car. How do you respond when people say, and I'm sure that they do, that it's not safe? And you mentioned a couple of things, that, that our world is set up for cars and there aren't sidewalks in a lot of places and we don't want our kids walking through sketchy neighborhoods potentially. Uh, how, do mm-hmm. you, how do you deal with that part of it? Um, you know, we had a book launch party in my town um, about five days ago. And it was lovely because, again, it's a small town and everybody knows everybody. So I knew most of the people there. And the first question someone asked was specifically about that. She had almost been hit twice while walking with her children. And she lives even slightly closer to the school than I do. And she just does not want to walk. And I was thinking about it afterwards. And I think as with all advocacy, no matter what the issue is, the people who have been most hurt should not be the ones having to put themselves on the front line, so to speak. So my view is that, you know, walking gives us such tremendous gifts. So if you can find ways to just go for a walk in a park after work, just to give yourself that pleasure, but don't necessarily feel safe with your kids, say, walking across gangland in Chicago, totally understandable, then you shouldn't have to do that. But I think we do all have to work together on the advocacy side. And I think any issue like this needs people from all angles. It doesn't mean that everybody has to get out and walk everywhere. For one thing, not everybody has the kind of time that, say, you know, I work freelance, so I can I can spend that extra half hour per day doing the walking. But I think um, if people are interested in seeing a world that is safer for kids, uh, for elderly people who might have a harder time walk, you know, crossing an eight-lane road that has a really tight crosswalk uh, timer, um, anyone who thinks that that is a good vision of the world can find ways to help advocate for it, and it doesn't all have to look the same. Antonia Malchik is the author of A Walking Life, Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom One Step at a Time. Antonia, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.